0: Have you seen me dice bag?
1: The Grognard Files
0: Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice and this is the Grognard Files podcast where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. This is the second part of episode 36, which was all about Lord of the Rings and Merp, Middle-earth role-playing. This part features all the bits that didn't fit in the first one. Don't see it as a supplement, see it as a wonderfully illustrated, off-canon scenario that enriches your experience of the world. We've had a new five-star review on Apple Podcasts, this time from Japan. I love listening to Dirk and Blythe waxing lyrical about their gaming experiences and discovered a great deal of other podcasters, writers and games which I'd love to try out among all the other in-depth lore behind their history of RPGs they discuss. Having hit the hobby circa White Dwarf 97, I was unaware of the golden years of the dwarf. The infectious enthusiasm for the hobby on the grog Pod means that I'm now desperate to find a local tabletop role-playing group after many years in the board games wilderness. Thank you. This is by Menian a.k.a. Rob, at Old Shabby Gamer on Twitter. He has a podcast that I've been enjoying, Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushy, where he shares his gaming memoir, my favourite format of podcasts, Japan via Scotland and all over the world, and The Hobbit has a special place in his heart too. It was great to hear that everyone enjoyed the first part of our interview with Liz Danforth. I hope you enjoyed the second part too, where she faces the Games Master's screen and talks about the Fellowship of the Troll getting back together and some more of her inspirations. We recorded this several weeks prior to the pandemic lockdown of the Western world and in the interview, Liz talks about her future travel plans, which are inevitably scuppered. I left it in because I enjoyed Liz's enthusiasm for the enriching properties of travel. At the time of recording this, Liz is actually suffering from the fever effects of COVID-19 virus so please join me in wishing her the very best for a speedy recovery. Get well soon, Liz. As I was saying, I love RPG memoirs, and I'm pleased to have Per Borden's first game, last game, and the game that means everything to him. And you can hear the Swedish experience. It was thanks to Per and his persistent hashtag grogmerp campaign that we created this episode. Daily Dwarf has written an essay that I'll read looking at the coverage of Tolkien and Merp in White Dwarf. Blithe joins me in the socially distanced room of virtual role-playing rambling. If it sounds a bit strange, it's because I didn't have my mic on and we were very, very, very drunk. It's the box, and we look at Ralph Batch's 1978 animated version of The Lord of the Rings. If you love that movie... Sorry, and what do we know anyway? We're just a couple of chances from Bolton. I'll be back at the end to roll on some criticals for new patrons. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Okay, the games master screen. I'm going to put this screen in front of uh, me and Liz. Hello, Liz. We're back again. Hi, Dirk. Hi. Di- I'm a
2: little rattled. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, I'm going to put this screen up in, in front of us, and I've got a table in front of me, Liz. That I'm gonna roll apparently at random using two dice and uh we're gonna pick some uh things from your career to talk about. So let's uh let's go first. Okay, that's uh nineteen. And that's the Fellowship of the Troll.
2: Oh, which, which
0: uh reunited, <laughs> didn't it, a few years ago, uh, to create the uh the deluxe TNT. So what was that experience like?
2: That was interesting because we had not worked closely together. Those of us who became the Fellowship of the Troll with that title um, had not worked closely together for literally decades. The French translator Patricia had produced a new French edition of TNT that was so amazing that we really wanted to bring the American edition back up to speed. Uh, I'd done a little, uh, just a little bit of artwork for it. We'd gotten together at TrollCon. Rick Loomis would have a small convention each in the middle of summer in Phoenix and said, this is gorgeous. We need a new edition. We need to get up to speed. The game's still popular. People still like it. Kickstarter exists. Maybe we can see if we still have a few fans out there. But we're all gonna to have to be on board for it. How are we gonna do that? And so we were all kind of circling around each other, going, mm-hmm. Do we can we do this? Laying out, well, this is what I would do, this is what I would do, this is what I would do. You know, I said, Yeah, I'm willing to do, you know, the editing and the art. And Crompton was going, Yes, I can handle the layout. That's what he'd been doing for you know, for Buffalo and for Ken's Trollhalla. Ken was going, yeah, I'd like to write a new edition. Bear was one of our holdouts and I sat him down in the corner and I gave him the biggest hard sell. It was like you have to be involved in this. You know, Rick was yeah, cool, whatever. This is, yeah, I mean, he was on. He was on board, but he, he also knew that it he, it would be a dance to keep all of us in line. Later Bear said that he had bought into it. From the word go, at the time, after talking to him for like 45 minutes nonstop, I thought he was not (laughs) going to go for it. But finally he said, yeah, yeah, I'll I'll participate, but I'm not going to be central. So the formal fellowship is Ken, me, Rick, and Crompton. Bear is Fellowship of the Troll, but with different levels of obligation. He has a real job. He has a wife. He He didn't feel he could participate the same way that other four of us were going to. And I think it was Crompton who came up with the term Fellowship of the Troll. But there were also quite a few different analogies we ended up making about why this could work. We had to sit down and have a really serious discussion with each other about we're going to have to trust each other, work with each other again in a way we haven't in a very long time and with a lot of sometimes tumultuous history behind us. One of the analogies, I think it was one I came up with, I said – we are like a ship. Rick Loomis owns the ship, okay? He's, he's the ship owner. Ken is the visionary standing at the prow, going, Land! Ho! I want to go that way. No, no, wait. I mean that way. Over here. <laughs> I want to go. We're going to go. Steve Crompton is at the steering wheel, you know, taking yeah. care of the ship's wheel. Bear is our first mate and morale officer. <laughs> and I'm the keel keeping us going straight. Each of us is strong where others are weak. And that ultimately is what made it possible for us to do this. Mm -hmm. Because we could recognize, I'm not nearly as inventive and creative as Ken. I could never have made the game the way he did. I would never have seen that. He saw something bigger and better, took this diamond in the rough, put it together, and I said, let me polish that, please. Because... It could be really shiny, but right now it's a really big rock. (laughs) (laughs) When any of us and all of us at one point or another came into disagreements with each other, uh, Rick was always there to uh, say, okay, let's cut to the chase, see see what we have in common, see what we're trying to accomplish, keep your eyes on the prize, this is where we're going. And we'd go, yes, sir, cool. You're the ship owner, and we're going to get this done, and it'll be cool. It was extremely... Wonderful to be able to work together like that. There was enough hitches and jumps. I mean, I came down with pneumonia in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was still working for the library at the time, and for three months I could barely leave the house. For six months I felt like crap and couldn't work very much, so the Kickstarter dragged on and on and on. I seriously burned my right hand, which is what I paint with, and that took me out of you know, out of the job for a while. All the while, the money from the Kickstarter that was supposed to pay for us to have the time to do this was evaporating. Again, bless his heart, you know, uh, Rick made sure that I wasn't going to find myself without the internet. I mean, I had my computer meltdown. I had literally fried my hard drive with no backup.
0: Oh.
2: Yeah, I I now have carbonite on everything. But um, uh, for about a month, I had no way to work on the project. We went through the forensic recovery. Mm-hmm. To, thankfully, I lost, a bu- I lost a lot of stuff, but I didn't lose Tunnels and Trolls. Mm-hmm. And I was able to get back to work on it. So there were a lot of things that really knocked yeah. us sideways. And everybody else had, had issues as well of one sort or another over time. So the fact that it came out at all, and we really had no idea if people were going to like what we did or not. We were shocked. I mean, delighted, shocked, humbled, amazed that so many people wanted to support it. It was like people were coming out of the woodwork to say, yes, please. And then when we finally released it, the most gratifying thing to me and the thing that really, we took so much shit for 40 years for stupid spell names for being just a cheap knockoff and all the rest of it. And it was like screw you. We know it's a good game. Get over yourself. <laughs> you know, but it was still it still hurts to have been poked for that many decades. The number of people who came on and said, "You know what? I really hated TNT when I was in middle school, but now that I'm looking at it, it was just ahead of its time."
0: I, I think you know uh... Initial podcast, we make that point actually. You know, some of the innovations that came in the 90s were already there in uh, Tunnels and Trolls, you know, some exploding dice, uh, all that, all that thing about saving throws and, uh, you know, being able to create stories on the fly. And I think the deluxe edition is a really great piece of work because it's got something that a lot of um, books don't have, and that's personality. And you can see the personalities of the creators coming through. Um, And I particularly like the way that um, you have little asides in uh, call-out boxes. (laughs) Just just offering a different interpretation of things. And I think that works really well.
2: Well, you know, I mean, Ken had always been one to say, if you don't like it the way it is, make it up. And I said, at some point you've got to make a decision because otherwise – they can just make up everything and they don't need the game. You know, sometimes about things like how many dice do you roll? You know, do you have a, a, a bell curve? Do you have a spike? Do you have a flat thing? <laughs> What's going to be the best way to do it? You know, Ken is an absolute hardcore. He believes in rolling every single solitary die. He and I could not come to an agreement about how to handle this. So said, okay, we're going to put this in and we're going to give you these choices. And this is why you would choose one choice over another one. This will give you this kind of a bell curve. This will give you this kind of a curve. This will give you all of the dice exactly the way the universe intends them to be. <laughs> and if they're all sixes, great. I don't <laughs> think it's going to happen, but go ahead. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I do think that, that does add something to the to it. And, of course, um, some great pieces of art that you produce for it as well. Um the cover's fantastic.
2: Thank you. Yeah. I had fun. It was, I wish I could have done the art to fit the space the way I did in fifth edition. When Pat Mueller, who was our art director and, and graphics person back in the day of fifth edition, she basically laid it out and said, here's the page, fill up the space. Crompton wanted everything bef- you know, intact, and then he would make the art smaller or larger to fit space that he wanted to put it in in the layout. I love Crompton. I'm glad he's here. We could not, in many ways, you know, live without him. Uh, that's true of all of the, the fellowship. And the loss of Rick Loomis has been very hurtful. His style and Pat's style are very different. And I would have, my personal choice would have been to have something more the way Pat worked. Because then I could say, okay, I've got this long, low shape. I can't have somebody standing up because there'll be a headshot. And there's a picture of a woman crawling through a, a you know, an underground tunnel kind of thing with the ghostly skulls. And that happened specifically because that's the shape she gave me. It was right. a creative challenge to do it that way.
0: That's great. Let's uh, go back to the table. Oh, this uh, brings us up to date. This actually it's um, 42. And this is Magic the Gathering because I know that uh, Magic the Gathering affords you the opportunity to see the world.
2: It does. I haven't. I was one of the first 49 artists, and there's a book called The Gathering, which is a collection of the first 49 artists from uh, full, streets, full Steam Press. And um, uh, the earliest magic artists were as much collaborators as illustrators. And I got in very early. I didn't get in on the alphas and betas, but immediately thereafter I did because I was already making my name in the game industry. The most recent card I have done is was 2006. So I haven't done anything for Magic for a long time. People keep asking me, well, why haven't you done anything for Magic? And I say, well, first of all, it's not my decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. And second of all, I'm not sure my style fits what they're doing nowadays. They are going back to more analog art and more illustrative art as opposed to the very, very uh, digital material, and then getting more variety. So I may talk to them again and see, are you interested? You know, I wouldn't mind doing it again, but for a long time, what I do is just not what they want. And I knew that I could see that. But there is enough nostalgia for the early cards, and for the artists who haven't been seen in a long time, that I'm able to attend magic fests, what used to be called the Grand Prix, all around the world. Because early on with the, with the Grand Prix, the artists were being treated the way they are at regular science fiction conventions, which is to say, you know, they'll pay your airfare, your hotels, maybe a stipend for food, all of these different things. And then slowly they cut back and back on that as the artists were making making bank, going there and getting paid, you know, by the organizers. You know, some of the artists called for a boycott going, if you want to take care of us, then we're not going to help you. We're there because people love our eye. My feeling is it's a business. If the bottom line doesn't work for you, then it doesn't work. And that's cool. But... I choose the events I go to in part because they offer me something else. Mm -hmm. And in this case, they're offering me the opportunity to travel around the world, to make my name, to increase my visibility again. I was, you know, life in progress, horrible midlife situation, you know, breakups and parent death and things like that. You know, I was off everybody's radar for a good 10 years. So I had to reinvent myself, and I'm still in the process of doing. Magic was a very big, high visibility thing for me. My opportunity to go to Barcelona, to go to London. I leave for Lyon, France in about two weeks. I'm gonna be in Prague in May. Because I was in Bilbao last year, I met someone who had done an interview much like yours, years before, from Poland for Polish TNT. That's what he knew me from. He had, he had been one of the people instrumental in getting Tunnels and Trolls, early editions, translated into Polish. And we met in Bilbao, and then he arranged for me to go to PyreCon, which is their big Gen Con 55,000 people attended last year.
3: My
0: goodness, and
2: they're bringing yeah. me in as a role-playing game guest. Mm -hmm. interested in. Earth Dawn is the stuff I've seen being talked about, Middle Earth, because Middle Earth is way bigger in Europe than it is, Europe and the UK, than it is here in the U.S. Nobody cares about, you know, Iron Crown and Middle Earth here in the States anymore. Mm Hardly, it seems like. But I regularly get asked to sign Middle Earth cards or people like you all talking about Middle Earth still. Almost all of my original Nazgul paintings sold in Germany. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so for me to go to Europe gives me, first of all, a chance to travel that I could not do otherwise. Mm-hmm. Even if I'm paying my own way, if I can make enough money at the Magic Fest to stay a little longer, or if I can get a double, I, I'm, I'm going to be able to spend all of May in Eastern Europe because I'm going to start at PyreCon at the beginning of May, spend two weeks playing tourist, and then I'm going to end the month in Prague at a Magic Fest. The, the PyreCon is paying my way to get over there. The Magic Fest should pay my expenses that I will have generated in the middle two weeks. I'll have had a month to play tourist yeah. in a part of the world that I had never seen, that I grew up with as being, ooh, scary behind the Iron <laughs> Curtain. You know, I'm old enough that that was a very big deal <laughs> yeah. back then. It was, like, we don't even talk about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, I've talked with my friend who, who lives outside Krakow, and he said, "Oh yeah, we had the whole thing. You know, all those imperial Amer- imperialist Americans, mm-hmm. terrible. You know, they're going to bomb us into the Stone Age in given half a second. I said, "Yeah, you know, I have the Titan Missile Museum outside my door here
3: in Tucson, Arizona,
2: where of course we were <laughs> high on the list of people who were going to get bombed first. So you know, add that." old history The Witcher and yes I play the game and yes I've read the books and yes I've seen the Netflix and I'm happy with all
0: <laughs> oh that's good <laughs> and, and uh, I, I've really enjoyed following your it's a sort of uh, journal uh, travelogue that you do on Patreon and uh, sharing some of your a, a more recent one you were showing some of your sketchbook uh, that, you, that you did while you were out there so is that part of the experience as well just uh, trying to capture the experience
2: Absolutely. Patreon changed how I think of myself as an artist. You know, I I take myself professionally, but I didn't take myself at all seriously. And so many people, when people want to give me money just to see what I do, it's like, I need to step up my game again. So instead of just going and looking, if I'm sitting around at a, you know, a cafe drinking a beer or, you know, in the evenings, you know, at the restaurant, I'm probably going to have my sketchbook with me. I've never been one to sketch a lot. Anthony Waters, for example, has huge sketchbooks. And I just, it blows my mind. It's something I wish I had been doing all my life. But um, I'm trying to make a point to spend more time sketching because of Patreon. And I'm trying to make a point to learn some of the things that I didn't learn in my youth by going to the art museums, by going to the Prado, by going and, you know, going to the Uffizi Gallery in Florence and seeing with new eyes as if I had, because there is a huge difference between looking at something printed in a book and looking at the original. Mm-hmm. That started when I went to the Brandywine Museum and was looking at uh, N.C. Wyeth and Howard Pyle. I'd seen those paintings for so long in, in adventure books, but seeing them in person, where I can see the brushstrokes and see the layers, that changed how I approached my own work. I said, trying to step up my game. It's why I took the class, master class under Donato Giancola, to try and practice my painting in a way and learn what I didn't learn when I was in my 20s.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Starting late, but get what I can.
0: <laughs> That's great. Let's roll on the dice again. Okay, I've got a 12 now. We've mentioned um, your work for MERP and for TNT, but uh, I was pleasantly surprised a couple of years ago when I opened up the pages of the Traveler Adventure, <laughs> and to see your depiction of Gavoods and the Varga—it's very, very characterful. And uh, of course, you—you know—you uh, have done uh, work for other um, other things like Earth Dawn and uh, other commissioned fantasy trip. So, of those, uh, which are, which are your favourites to work with?
2: That's hard. Um... I would say that in some ways, Shadowrun and Earth Dawn excited me the most. And some of that was the inspiration of Jeff Loebenstein. He and I still communicate, we still cross paths at Magic Fests. He was one of the inspirations for me to start seriously taking the Magic Fests uh, as a way to see the world mm-hmm. because he's doing that. He's doing these like every weekend. I don't know how the hell he does it and still does artwork besides. But uh, seeing him traveling and seeing his stories about going places, I said, wait, I can do that. But I've always, always, always been captured by the bizarreness of his art and the the strange otherworldliness of it. I, I would say that, try again, trying to step up and meet him halfway in those worlds, those concepts, the idea of, with Shadowrun, where the world changed and suddenly there's a reason. The elves and the dwarves and the trolls and the ogres are all back. Mm -hmm. And that was your neighbor next door a month ago. I liked that idea. I enjoyed Traveler and it reached an audience that nothing else I did did because mostly Mm -hmm. I work in fantasy. So here was an opportunity to work in science fiction. When I was in high school, I turned my nose up at fantasy. I had no use for that, that Conan shit. (laughs) You know. <laughs> and then someone introduced me to Fafford the Mouser, and I said, I really like this stuff. <laughs> uh, but before that, I, w- I was very snooty about, I like science fiction because that's real, or it could be, you know, fantasy is just make-believe. Because you know, yeah. I'd gotten away from Tolkien and all the rest of it. And then it was like, no, I really like fantasy. Uh, so Traveler, Traveler fed that hunger a little bit. As I said, I tend to prefer organics over... Yeah. It's why why I was so late coming to things like pers- learning how to use perspective.
0: Yeah. And, uh, and uh, I think we made the point when we saw um, your depiction of Gavudzin, that um, that is somebody who really loves dogs as well. So <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> it's full of, full of uh, character. Okay, I'm going to uh, roll on the table again. Okay, this time it's an eight. Uh, and this is um a project you were involved in it's very close to our hearts because um the city books the catalyst city books were something that were very important and inspired us to spend hours and hours uh creating stories <laughs> and uh I and places. So
2: glad to hear that
0: <laughs> and um I know that you you were very much involved in the development of those weren't you? as a as a developer and a project manager so
2: tell us about that I loved city book because I I love the idea of telling stories. If you'd asked me when I was 16, you're gonna be creative, known for something creative when you're 60. What's it gonna be? And I said, it would have been all the novels and all the stories I would have written. I would never have thought art would be what I would be known for. Again, it goes back to what I said in the previous podcast about I didn't think I was any good. <laughs> but I loved writing, I loved storytelling and i don't get to do enough of it city books again fed that hunger i've always had a problem with plots something for my characters to do but i'm really good at creating characters i write dialogue well i create worlds i can do all of the stuff you know world building for a story but i've always had to really fight hard to tell a sequence of events in a plot so city book was the perfect match for what I was good at. Everybody, I think, has stories and people and places and things that they would like to do like that. So, we reached out to, yeah, uh, Mike Sackpole is, was a writer first, gamer second kind of thing. And Ken knew a lot of writers. And so we reached out to a lot of people who had a foot in both worlds to say, help us build things. Yeah. And Larry Detilio was one of the first to really take charge with, you know, City Book number one. He was working for Flying Buffalo at the time. I had already been being asked to do a lot of portraits for Iron Crown, especially, but also for traveling. Just the head and shoulders portraits, this is what the character looks like. City Book again, fed to one of my strengths because this is what the character looks like. And this is, you know, the sign outside the building. I still like City Books. I would, you know, I had proposed to Rick many years ago now, quite a few years ago, when there had been a lull. Uh, Janelle J. Quays edited a few in later years, and then had moved on with her career. And I'd gotten hold of Rick. I said, I'd like to do something. This was when I was working for the library, but didn't really have a lot of freelance going on. Maybe I, this is something we could do a little bit of at a time. You know, we talked about it and couldn't make it work out. But that's still been in the back of my mind. Bear Peters and Steve Crompton came down for my birthday last fall. They just came down to have, you know, have a chat and go out to dinner for birthday, birthday dinner kind of thing. And I said, you know, guys, I've got this thing I've wanted to do for years. Is this anything I'd like to meet up like this more often? I don't see you guys enough since I moved to Tucson. Proposed what I what we had in mind, which was basically you two just take an establishment, spend some time writing it. We can put them up on drive through RPG as we finish them, one at a time. Mm-hmm. Slowly pull in some other people. A little here, a little there. And then when we have a whole book finished, so mm-hmm. that it's not me going, hi, I'm holding up Elven Lords again. Or Tunnels <laughs> and Trolls or anything else. It's all done. <laughs> uh, all we need to do is print it. It may take us a couple of years. Oh, right now, Steve and Bear we're not going to be able to meet until at least after I get back from France, even though we're scheduled for another one. And it may not be till summer because of other things. Steve, is, Steve has obligations as well, especially running Flying Buffalo now. So there's three first draft establishments, from one from each of us. There's a fourth person we've asked to participate, an old Flying Buffalo person uh, who wants to get his hand in and, and do something with it we'll see where it takes us. Right now it's a good excuse for us to get together and, and see each other every so often because otherwise it wouldn't happen.
0: I know at the time that we found that it was very innovative because it allowed your imagination to fill in the gaps and uh to create things <laughs> from it and uh I, I still think that there's an appetite for that kind of uh, supplement.
2: And and certainly yeah, I mean the first city book won an Origin Award because it was the first time anyone had done anything quite like that. Now you can go and drive through RPG, and there are plenty of other mm-hmm. resources doing that kind of thing. Uh, so we're no longer innovation on it, and we are, you know, hearkening back to the nostalgia factor again. Mm-hmm. But um,
0: there's nothing because- wrong with that. This podcast is built on that. <laughs>
2: is that and and honestly if you're doing something for fun and people like it that's how we got here in the first place
0: exactly yeah i
2: never if you i would never have imagined this you know when rick said will you do a cover for supernova i never thought that would end up being the door opening to my career
0: yeah as long as it's fun that's all that matters isn't it
2: it, it makes it a lot easier to wake up in the morning and go do it. Yeah. And if somebody else likes it, that's what makes it possible to do it again and not just, oh, this is a one-off.
0: Let's, uh, let's roll again. Okay, the final roll. And this is uh, 72. Uh, because of our patrons, we were able to commission some work from you uh, a couple of years ago for the <laughs> second grog scene, The Cavalcade of yep. Monsters. I still I still look at that uh, image and I, I love it, especially because you created it especially for us. I just wanted to talk to you about uh, monsters and monster design because you know you mentioned the Nazgul and your take on that. How I, how do you go about that uh, process of creating monsters?
2: <laughs> Inspiration is everywhere. You know, <laughs> I um, it as we were saying earlier, Tolkien affected everyone so that. Dwarves and elves and hobbits and uh, you know orcs are the bread and butter of fantasy nowadays. And anybody who gets their foot in the door there then moves on to the Lurus mythology and all of the other you know uh, you know Slavic mythologies uh, you know which are bringing in. And all of the Slavic stuff, uh, you know. Charles Saunders bringing in a lot of Black African uh, fantasy, and you know, people know banshees and they know the she and they know the they know the kobolds before D and D got a hold of them. If they do their research from the Germanics uh, and Scandinavian myths, the the Asian mythologies. So we've mined all of these things upside down and backwards, and um, I doubt there's a game designer out there that doesn't have a whole shelf full of mythology and history books. But for me, I end up drawing, I think, as much on my zoology minor. Like I said, an anthro major, zoology minor. I'll spot a piece of something in one place and combine it with a bit of physiology, anatomy in another place, and then a concept over in another place, and then I delve in the back back of my head for my id. Mm-hmm. And what comes out is something that I hope is interesting to look at and evocative, but maybe someone hasn't seen it before. When I did the picture for you and for Ken St. Andre's article, all of the creatures he described were things that the world has seen before, to some extent. I admit, I found it very unsatisfying. And I ended up because I was actually visiting the same people that I was visiting this past weekend, and they are insanely creative. Just walking into their house makes my brain explode with fresh ideas. For reasons I won't go into, they have a dancing goat on the back of their car, okay, <laughs> as, as an emblem. And here I was doing an ordinary kind of centaur for Ken's drawing, and I said, a goat tour would be really cool. <laughs> and so it was half goat, half llama. And how did I make that physiology work? And it would be lighter body than a big horse. And this is really cool. And so that's, I've got a goat tour in this sketch that is an absolute copy of the one I did for you, but with all new people in those Uh, same positions, okay? Instead of the goblin in the middle of the picture, there's this creature that you can't tell whether, I mean, it's kind of humanoid. But it's got either bark for skin or bark for armor or a little bit of both. And its eyes aren't quite right. And it's not holding a weapon that looks like any ordinary weapon because I've cobbled together three things into something else. And I did the same thing with the creature Ken called the Snallygoster on the front of the uh, Monsters, Monsters cover. I just had a sinuous body shape for the orc to be riding. And... Built a body up from it. It wasn't intended to be a dragon per se. It was just a thing for him to ride. And yeah. Ken said, Oh, it's a smiling oh, oster now. And that's <laughs> cool. And I'm glad I make things up from bits and pieces of other things. Uh, you asked about Traveler, and there was, I think it was Lauren who, Lauren Wiseman, had made a, for an early Traveler adventure, a bear monster that was also was a cross between a bear and a spider okay that's cool but the physiology he described in it didn't make any sense it was just oh it's a bear with a spider web so it's as big as a bear and spider webs is thick and it's going to be dangerous I said how the hell are you going to do that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And he said, well, I don't know, it works, right? It's just, you don't have to explain it. And I said, let me explain it for you. <laughs> <laughs> I sat down and I gave a skeleton, because it was, it was also six-legged. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to figure out the skeleton so that I could draw it right. I had to s- turn the mammary g- glands into spinnerets <laughs> and come up with a justification for how that was going all of my zoology coming into play. <laughs> And he said, this is cool. And I ended up being the co-writer on it because he said, well, I like it. It's great. But I couldn't let it go without being explained. I couldn't just say, it's a six-legged bear that spins a spider web.
0: Oh, that's that's a, a great story because that's the thing, isn't it? With uh, the first thing I turn to in a new game is the best to see how the world's populated. And, and you're right, um, too often games default to um, cliche.
2: It, it's, it's a trade-off because it is easy to relate to something that already exists. Mm-hmm. You, know, you don't have to stretch uh, the same way you have to go, well, I don't know how this little bark guy is going to talk or think. I'm going to have to invent it on the fly, and if I'm just trying to play the game, I you're going to find out about it the same way I do on on minute to minute. So, mm-hmm. but you know, Money Cook also will create it all. <laughs> she's saying, um, yeah, but that's a lot of a lot of front loading for the game designer and the game player. Mm-hmm. So, having novelty is good. Having something you can relate to easily is good. Finding a middle ground for me would be ideal.
0: Yes. Yeah. Because you need uh, that balance, don't you, of imagination and uh, off-the-wall things with that verisimilitude, that idea that this is something that could exist and has an ecology. Well, thank you very much, Liz. It's been absolutely brilliant to spend this time with you.
2: Thank you, Dirk.
3: Hello, my name is Per, and I'm delighted to deliver my first, last and everything. You can find me on Twitter as Per at One or on my blog RollerOne.com. It was 1984, and I was 12, and my slightly older cousin Mika was visiting us in our little provincial town in the heartlands of Sweden, Dalarna, where if you take the wrong fork, you may come upon a lonely and curious country, in areas that remind you of some lovecraftian environment. Desolate, quiet, and with the occasional character sneaking around or looking through the windows with empty stairs and some doors hanging on rusty and consequently noisy hinges blowing in the wind. These are places where they say shoot, dig, keep quiet, that kind of thing. I mean, all that Nordic noir crime stuff must have come from somewhere. But most of it are quaint red houses with white trimmings surrounded by, wait for it, round old fences. He, my cousin, cajoled me into buying this new game that he had played called Mutant, a game set after the catastrophe in a future Scandinavia. You could play as mutated humans and animals, or be a robot from the old time, but with a messed up memory bank, with a tendency to obey orders from pure humans, or those who had not too obvious of mutations. Later I have learned they were programmed to follow Asimov's three robotic laws. You could also be a psy-mutant with mental powers, shunned by most people with or without fear. They were like magic users, but very often with defects like madness or confusion, triggered by failing to use a mental ability, making it very frustrating at times. Or you could be a pure, non-mutated human that was considerably sturdier and more clever than we are today, and with a patronizing at best too, a disrespectful view on mutants. The society that had arisen was roughly at the technology level of the early 19th century. You could arm yourself with a musket if you had the cash, but equally common were a baseball bat and an old bin lid, or traffic sign with a moose as a shield. It was a more organized society than in movies like Mad Max. Things had calmed down. There were forbidden zones to adventure in, and the dungeon equivalent were old research labs or other underground facilities with a chance of finding old tech crazy cyber computers, frozen people from the old times, or mutated beasts, sometimes all at once. The dragon equivalent were giant beetles and land sharks that swam through the earth. It was my first role-playing game, and we had never heard anything like it. And it also came with some funny-looking dice. But no gaming board, just a little cardboard sheet that was used to resolve whether the character understood what the old tech item he had just found was. My cousin had never GM'd before, and actually, as it turned out, he had never played the game. However, he spent a day reading it, and the following evening, a few friends and I made some characters. Mine, a mutated moose, a hunter, with a big club and a musket. Then he very ably played us through the introductory scenario, Uptragi in Mos or Mission in Mos Moselle, until the small hours. It was love at first play. This game has evolved to what today is known as Mutant Year Zero, and the number of the modern products has given more than a nod to the old modules and adventures. However, we quickly advanced to non Swedish RPGs. It was not as cool to play the Swedish games, at least not in those days. We went on a school trip to London in Year 9. This was 1987, and the trip was funded to not a small part of us selling loaves of home baked breads outside a local shopping centre. We also set up a school show and invited all the parents and students. I, and yet another cousin and fellow gamer, Sebastian, played two drunk characters and we made some crap jokes pretending to be pissed. And we had a grand finale with the song Shut Up By Your Face by Joe Dolce. In London, we equipped with a summer of earnings from working for the local council's real estate department, cutting lawns, bushes and collecting rubbish... Delivering leaflets at weekends or selling the Sunday issue of a broadsheet newspaper, ended up buying a lot of RPG games and modules from Orc's Nest, still on Earlham Street today, Games Workshop, and The Virgin Shop on Oxford Street. We got Judge Dredd, MURP, the Middle-Earth role-playing game, Call of Cthulhu, and Who You Gonna Call Ghostbusters, Top Secret, Chill, Time Master, Paranoia, and Warhammer Fantasy role-playing, and God only knows what else. I remember the only non-RPG stuff I bought was God Save the Queen, the single by Sex Pistols and Bob Marley's Exodus, Movement of Ya People. But also a shout out to the amazing Swedish shop Hobbyhuset in Uppsala. They had an amazing selection of RPGs in their catalogue and excellent shipping service. We sometimes even took the one and a half hour train trip and visited the cellar it was located in and got some strange stuff from the bargain bucket. It was this shop that really opened up the hobby for us country boys. We played so much RPG games in our youth. In people's houses, but eventually in a shed with a heater that made it bearable. We hated splitting up the group as we had to stand outside in the bloody cold freezing our dirks off. Remember, this was Sweden when we had proper seasons. Later we asked our school if we could use one of the classrooms in the evening and weekends and the head teacher gave us a key and we had a hell of a good time. We had a good group with a few changes along the way, but then playing in death metal bands, national service, university education, and moving abroad split the old gang. We had our ups and downs, but now, reflecting on it 30 years or so later, I can only recall the positive aspects. So, to my old grog squad Jonas, Petri, Sebastian, Tommy, Thomas, Magnus, Mikke, Reidar, Erik, Petter. Krister, Anton, Fredrik and the guy who only came once and played Pendragon with us and anyone else I forgot, but also to my new grog squad, the Adventurers Club, led by Dirk, Blythe, Ed and the Daily Dwarf, I raised my glass of vodka to you all. Although there was a lot of fear-mongering around the RPG hobby in the mainstream media at the time, thinking we would become too introvert, turn into extremists or jump from buildings imagining we could fly, I think our parents were grateful for the fact that instead of being out drinking moonshine vodka, a speciality of the region, and making the town unsafe, we instead sat in a shed, telling each other stories and rolling dice. I think we all turned out okay in the end. In the day, we shared the burden of game mastering our little but uh, merry band, but the longer campaigns were usually game mastered by myself or Jonas, and one of the first games he ran was MERP, Middle Earth Roleplaying. Jonas was amazing with regards to preparing for campaigns and game sessions, and his knowledge of Middle-earth was very deep. He had even read The Silmarillion and The Lost Tales. Later Jonas were to run a very long AD&D campaign, 2nd edition, and although I never really liked the system, his overall campaign, with a mixture of shorter episodes, long-running plots, and reappearing protagonists, was probably the best campaign I have ever played. However, back to Merp. The rules today feels old-fashioned, being a light version of the bigger rolemaster system, but at the time offered us some kind of balance between the always fragile character in the basic role-playing system kind of game, and the rise of your AD&D characters towards immortality. With Merp's open-ended rolls, there was always a chance that an opponent could score critical hits and do some substantial damage, whatever the differences in character levels, armor class, etc. You had to be careful, and not every encounter would be a question of drawing a sword. And the magic system was definitely not Tolkienesque. But then Jonas did not allow us to be wizards. Anyway. But what was more, on top of this, and perhaps the real legacy of Merp, was the many fantastic modules, and not the rules themselves. The modules had some fantastic drawings and amazing covers that shaped our vision of this amazing world. There were many talented artists contributing to these modules. But for me, there are two I would like to mention especially. First, the legend Angus McBride, who did some exceptional cover art for many of the MERP modules. The second artist is, of course, Liz Danforth, who created an outstanding visual presentation of the various characters, races and creatures of this wonderful world. And by the way, a big thanks to you, Liz, for your support to the hashtag Grogmer campaign, on Twitter. But there was more. The modules contained information about the people and lands, and it felt like it stayed true to the lore, but expanded where there were white spots. Herbs requires a special mention, and were like modern mobile phone apps. There was an app, sorry, I meant a herb for that. It is actually my last last RPG I played, and a big part of my recent interest in the hobby. However. There was only one game that I really, really immersed myself into in the day, and it was The Call of Cthulhu RPG. I guess it does not need any deeper introduction. The first time I played it was at the RPG club in my hometown that some of us used to go to and play, as well as playing with the core group. The club was founded by Magnus Setern and Dahl-Alstrand, who today are well-known characters in the RPG industry. It was an excellent way in getting to know like-minded and try out a wider array of games. The club even ran a few conventions, and I wrote The Call of Cthulhu scenario for the first two, with imaginary titles of The Shadow in Darkness and The Dweller in the Shadow. You can actually find these on the net, but mind you, they are written in Swedish and a very long time ago. Our little band played some of the epic campaigns like Fungi from Yogoth later more adequately renamed The Day of the Beast or something like that, The Spawn of Ashtoth, and even The Horror on the Orient Express, although our campaign derailed after a few stops. But for me, it was the Arkham County series of books that really made the game come alive. We played scenarios in the Miskatonic Valley, in places straight from the Lovecraft stories like Arkham, Dunwich, Innsmouth and Kingsport. The players included professors working at the Miskatonic University, A PE teacher who could throw a javelin like no other, a retired major from the British Army. Yes, he was a hell of a marksman with his Webley revolver. Private investigators, a daredevil pilot, and a medical doctor at the Arkham Asylum. The scenarios, both ready-made and homebrewed, focused on local events. It made it more scary and intense when reoccurring NPCs asked for help suddenly disappeared, ended up at the asylum, or were found dead. When you could weave in characters' family trees into the scenarios with the realization that the great-grandfather, Elia Waitrose, was a Cthulhu cultist, or that great aunt Tess Collie was an adventurer lost in dreamlands. As for anyone who may not be familiar with the literature, I really recommend that you read the wonderful, but not for the faint-hearted, stories like The Call of Cthulhu, The Dunwich Horror, Escape from Innsmouth, The Whisperer in Darkness, and The Color Out of Space, to name some of my favorites. Yes, having moved on more than 30 years from that initial fascination, I know that H.P. Lovecraft probably was a man I would end up arguing with in the pub. He was a racist, homophobe, etc. Revealed by studying his letters and analyzing some of the stories, I get it. But I was never in it for that. I was in it for the chill, sense of hopelessness in a world full of unknown things that humanity at best had a very limited understanding of. The desperate fight against overwhelming odds of getting either permanently insane or ending up dead. The immense joy of game mastering a group of seasoned investigators in gathering clues from libraries, local newspapers, speakeasies, weird locals, etc. They, the characters, were never flashing heroes with shiny armor and glimmering swords or caped crusaders flying their flag. They were mostly normal people who endlessly fought on. Call of Cthulhu is my everything.
2: The good friends
0: of Jackson Elias are Scott Dawood, Paul Fricker and Matthew Sanderson.
3: And together, they talk on their podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and weird fiction, as well as other horror role-playing games. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or head over to BlasphemousTomes.com
0: Merp! Merp! By Daily Dwarf After chuntering on about J.R.R. Tolkien's writing last month, it's high time that we return to gaming. Tolkien was a clear and obvious influence on fantasy role playing games, whatever Gary's protestations in The Dragon magazine might say. And features based on his works appeared in the pages of White Dwarf throughout its RPG era. They handily split into two time frames, AM and PM, that's anti merp and post merp. First out of the gate was Law of the Ring, by Stephen Bland, in issue 32. In this article, he'd set himself a pretty difficult task, that of translating Tolkien's Rings of Power into D&D. This, of course, was a tricky undertaking. Magic, in general, and the Rings of Power in particular, are rare, elusive and nebulous in Tolkien's works. He deliberately left their precise nature vague, This meant, to codify the ring's powers into D&D mechanics, Stephen Bland had to divine them from hints and allusions in the books. In this regard, I think he did a pretty admirable, thorough job, listing powers both benign and malevolent for the various rings. Extended use of the one ring risked the PC slowly turning into a Nazgul, so statistics were provided. The ring-wraiths were made very tough in D&D terms. Another good job of translating the elements from the books and making them gameable. Statistics were even provided for the Nazgul's two types of steed. Horses, special ability, saying Benny Hill once per day, and winged beast, beautifully illustrated in the article by Russ Nicholson. Next up was Lewis Pulsifer's controversial Kazadum his take on Moira as an introduction to D&D. Controversial in some people's eyes, the way that Tolkien's characters were depicted in the scenario, particularly Gandalf. As I said, Tolkien's magic is ill-defined. Despite his pointy hat and long beard, Gandalf casts very few spells in the books, which led Lou Pulsifer to make him an 8th level cleric. It was a smart move, I think enabling the player who took on Gandalf to inspire and heal the members of the Fellowship, emulating the fiction without overpowering the character. Now, we discussed Kazadum previously in episode 6, part 2 of the Pod, so I won't cover it again here, except to note that the consternation of some readers with loose mutilations of Tolkien rumbled on in the letters pages up to issue 49 nearly a year after the original publication of the adventure. Ah, the long-lost joys of pre-internet letters-page disputes. In issue 53, Joe Dever brought us Minas Tirith, a mega-scenario for Warhammer, allowing you to re-fight the Battle of Pelennor Fields to your heart's content. This is another feature that we previously covered, Episode 12 is the place to go to rally your troops once more to the final assault against the Witch King of Angmar. While many existing RPGs owed a debt of gratitude to J.R. Tolkien for inspiration, things changed in 1984 when Iron Crown Enterprises released Middle Earth Roleplaying, a game specifically designed to allow you to walk the lands of Andor and to seek adventure amongst the peoples of Middle Earth. The rules were reviewed by John Sutherland in Open Box, Issue 58. He found Merp to be a well-conceived and well-written system, if not very accessible for beginners, declaring it the best new RPG of the year and signing it off with a statement, I've not been so impressed since I first read Call of Cthulhu. High praise. He highlighted the fact that the rulebook contained no less than 20 pages of system tables, noting that some of the critical hit table comments are a real hoot. Ah yes, Murp's notorious critical hit tables. I never played Murp back in the day, but I heard all about those highly detailed critical hit tables. As Blythe commented last episode, they always struck me, even at the time, as curiously out of step with the source material. Tolkien isn't one for snapping bones and flying viscera, after all. My first actual game of Merp was only in the last few months, courtesy of the excellent Steve Ray, at Olanth R on Twitter. And during this session, I had what can only be described as a Warhammer moment, whilst wielding a Warhammer appropriately enough. Tackling a trawl outside a mist-shrouded barrow... My dwarf? Typecast? Moi? Dealt him a blow to the chest that sent his ribcage through his lungs, meaning that he would drop and die in six rounds. Vicious! Oh, very satisfying. The poor old professor would have dropped his pipe in horror at the scene. Before too long, Games Workshop were publishing Merp in the UK under licence now with what looked like a big fat purple genie on the box cover. And who could resist that? Support for the game was needed in the pages of White Dwarf. The problem was, the magazine was already under the control of the dark and terrible power of a certain other fantasy RPG. A hero was needed to take the perilous journey and carry MURP into the dark lands of D&D. Step forward, that Redoubtable fellow and former Grogpod interviewee, Graham Staplehurst. Over the next few years it became his mission to bring Murp to the masses. Graham's first Murp scenario was The Dawn of the Unlight in issue sixty four. I say Murp scenario, but it also included the stats for D and D by cleverly disguising the Mirp infiltration of White Dwarf from the attention of the D&D Wraiths. The adventure itself was set in Mirkwood, with the party discovering the aftermath of a massacre of a small tribe of woodsmen in the forest. A series of random encounters provided clues that led the PCs deeper into the forest, ending up at a barrow and a confrontation with a group of cultists. It is Merp not Call a Cthulhu, honest, intent on bringing back the big bad last seen in The Simmerillion. The scenario captured the flavour of Tolkien's fiction with plenty of atmospheric description and a carefully pitched mood, effectively weaving a sense of dread for the players. A few encounters felt engineered, forcing the direction of plot at the time, but overall this evoked Tolkien pretty well and was a good start to the Murp coverage in White Dwarf. Fiend Factory in issue 65 gave us a rare MIRP feature not penned by Graham Staplehurst. Fancy some more inspiration from the Cimmerillion? Really? Blimey! Well, Stephen Prisman gave us the The No-Gith-Nibbin, also known as the Petty Dwarves, a dying race with a deep enmity against the elves. Unusually for Fiend Factory rather than just detailing the race in general nine individual members of the clan were specified. Despite this level of detail I'm not too sure that anything made them especially stand out. Maybe you'll get more from this article if you're more of an Tolkien officiando familiar with the background. Nice art though. No doubt entirely coincidental with the release of Games Workshop's Purple Genie edition of Merc, Graham Staplehurst wrote The Road Goes Ever On, an introduction to the game for White Dwarf readers in issue 66. He considered how the system measured up to Tolkien's works and how to use it to bring Middle-earth to life in a game. Reading it now, I think he has quite a rose-tinted view of the game itself. Clearly Graham was... And no doubt still is, a big Tolkien fan. So he was predisposed to like the system. Combat wasn't given too much coverage in the article, aside from noting that it could be rather bloody. His main quarrel was with the magic system, as also identified by Blythe in the previous pod, magic being too prevalent and easily to obtain, which could upset the flavour of the game and its authenticity. His hints for the beginning of game mainly consisted of start small before going on to extol the virtues of the various ICE modules. He did acknowledge that it was the supplements that brought Middle-earth of the Third Age to life and provided a scope for adventure. Ultimately, the article read like an advertorial. As discussed by Dirk and Blythe last month, when considering the system alone, there's not much in the rules to distinguish it from generic fantasy. But Tolkien's fans long waited for an RPG aimed at the professor's works. I suspect at the time maybe the name alone was enough. Two scenarios appeared next. In the introduction to Star Spray in issue seventy three, Graeme Staplehurst stated that you that you didn't need to have read Tolkien to play the adventure but then pitched straight into some detailed background. Throwing about historical names and events with gay abandon, I found it all rather difficult to keep up with. And I've read the Cimmerillion. Once, a long time ago, I don't like to talk about it. Anyway, the scenario had a low-key opening, with a series of seemingly unconnecting mini-adventures, retrieving treasure from a magically defended tower capturing a baby mumak for a travelling circus, investigating a dungeon under the Numenorean Castle and the Isle of Tofalas. Events slowly coalesced with the PCs taking a sea voyage to an isolated island populated by some notable NPCs, including a giant with the name of, get this grog squad, Hobnob. Everything led to that final encounter with another significant character from the Cimmerillion. But the events on the island were rather scripted, with the PCs largely bystanders, potentially at a loss of what was happening. I like the seafaring theme of this scenario, but it really was strictly for the Tolkien obsessives. Graham's next adventure, A Secret Wish, was designed to entertain the players with unusual scenes and diverting experiences. Having assumed a high level of knowledge of Tolkien in a previous scenario, this time he had the good grace to include a mini-history lesson for the GM to help fill in the background. The adventure centred on the following conundrum. How did the elf Glorfindel, who sacrificed himself during the fall of Gondolin, then appear in the Third Age? saving Frodo at the fort of Brunnen. Graham posited a sort of reverse sleeping beauty story for the PCs to investigate. There were lots of nice tolkien touches here, tree hobbits, an atmospheric dangerous journey through the marsh, and the Ossia, an evil, ent-like being that preferred eating people to boring them to death with poetry. I found the proposed ending a bit slight and unsatisfactory, but the high level of detail provided, plus a more free-form structure to the adventure, meant that there was plenty here for the gamesmaster to work with and develop. Next up on Graham's arduous quest was the article "Where and Back Again" in issue seventy-nine. This gave advice on starting up a Middle-earth campaign, with various campaign styles considered. The Quest, classic JR, The Crusade, a more action-combat orientated, General Adventuring, and Societal, good for those players who like to indulge in a bit of political manoeuvring. He evaluated each style in terms of how it could be achieved in the setting of Middle Earth and how the rules could be used to support the campaign. Graham's dissatisfaction with Mirp's magic system reared its head again as he confessed that he'd binned it from his home campaign and encouraged GMs to be similarly as bold and change the rules where they wanted. In discussing the adventuring possibilities in the various ages of Middle Earth, he actually provided a handy bluffer's guide to Tolkien's works for those of us too lazy to tackle the books. Graham then provided imaginative examples of each campaign style. My favourite was a quest for the crown of Númenor, which with just a few paragraphs created a suitably epic feel and linked events throughout the history of Middle-earth. He signed off the article with a controversial conclusion. We owe the very concept of role-playing games to Tolkien. Is that the sound of rapid rotation I can hear? Coming over the sea from Lake Geneva? Issue 87's adventure, Torre Fanto, had an innovative opening that drew the PCs in. A land-going ship of Ent-wives had appeared in Middle-earth. This triggered political machinations in various interested parties, all seeking to gain from this unprecedented event, with the potential for armed conflict too. The party had to decide who they trusted and whose side they would like to take in the unfolding events. The scenario had an interesting structure. Graham provided an outline plot, plus plenty of rumours and events for the GM to throw into the mix, followed by five background essays, which furnished plenty of background detail. Maybe too much in terms of usefulness for the adventure itself. Graham appeared to enjoy himself most when describing the various agents of Sauron to unleash on the party. While the scenario as a whole had quite an open structure, the climax felt very forced and highlighted a particular problem with the adventures set in Middle-Earth. Graham, as a Tolkien purist, felt that the historical continuity of the fiction had to be respected. There was no, your Middle-Earth may vary here. This meant that the climax had to fit in with the known history. A shame, as it robbed the scenario as potential for surprise, or for the PCs to take it in an unexpected direction. While it had the stats for Murp as well as Woofrup, Graham's next scenario, on Eldon Brajan, left talking behind and took his adventuring in Sherwood Forest with the PCs as a band of merry outlaws, trying to stay one step ahead of their enemy, Sir Guy of Gisburne, Freed from the strictures of Middle-earth, he had great fun with this, conjuring up a mishrouded mystical atmosphere with low rolling hills topped with mysterious stones and barrow mounds and rumours of buried treasure. He provided just enough history to add background and flavour without overburdening the scenario. It was a small-scale adventure, but good fun, and had multiple strands for the DM to spin in different ways. Graham credited the Robin of Sherwood TV series as an inspiration, and so to Graham Staplehurst's final MERP scenario, Letters from a Foreign Land, issue ninety-three. Actually, this was another multi-system adventure, as well as MERP. It could also be run for Woofrup and Call the Cthulhu with the setting changing from Middle-earth to Ostland in the Old World or the Balkans, according to the chosen system. It struck me at the time that Merp and Call of Cthulhu seemed unlikely bedfellows, but the structure of the scenario made it work, employing a versatile concept that suited the different settings. It had the classic onion-skin-style investigation approach, where tracking down a missing person led to various run-ins with the cultists of Sauron, Chaos, Cthulhu, delete as appropriate. There was a nice, oppressive atmosphere to proceedings, and reading it again, it struck me that the scenario could easily be extended into a mini-campaign, with the party just one step behind the main villain, always being thwarted by their nemesis until the final climatic showdown and he never thought you'd see a merp adventure illustrated by Dave Carson, more usually associated with Cthuloid excess. Think again. Admittedly, he was on a fairly restrained form here, for Dave anyway. And so, Graham Staplehurst's quest was complete. He had taken merp into the very heart of the Darklands. He sat, exhausted, there at the end of all things, hope still stern in his heart. Mayhap I'll be rescued yet, he thought. Looking to the west, he spied a vast shapes in the sky flying towards him. The eagles are coming, the eagles are coming, he cried in joy. But though Graham knew it was not, even more dark and terrible foe had emerged within the pages of White Dwarf. He watched Helplessly as the eagles were shot out of the sky by a band of forty K orc boys and the flakadaka gun. as I believe the kids and orcs would have it. Dragon box! Welcome to the virtual room of role playing rambling. I'm in my virtual dirk hall with Blythe. Hello Blythe. Hello, Dirk. We're socially distancing ourselves we're about 15 miles apart that's that's enough i think isn't it
1: 15 miles apart in different buildings i think it's enough i think it is yeah, <laughs> yeah
0: i think <laughs> it'll do it i think it'll do it and yeah. uh, we're having it we're having a drink
1: yeah, yeah you say so, having a drink or, or is it we've had
0: a drink so although we're not in the pub you'll have to imagine that there's buddy holly playing and the stars on 45
1: I, I imagine the people who complain about the noise We'll be, we'll be happy, but the people who, there'll be other people who complain there isn't enough noise.
0: Yeah. We have just watched uh, Lodder Rings, the uh, Ralph Batsky uh, version from uh, the 70s. Uh, together, we do a simulcast didn't we? We were in our own yeah. living rooms watching it. Well,
1: I was so... about three minutes behind you. Yeah.
0: Well, it's a distance, Simul- it?
1: sort of half cock simulcast. That
0: but... I remember watching this in your mum's living room.
1: Back in the day. Well, it's my living room as well at the time.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think I always associated that living room with your mum because it had a collection of Henry VIII's wives in porcelain. I think she had That's Anne correct.
1: Berlin. That's correct. She still has those. Is Anne she? Boleyn. She, Anne Boleyn, yeah. With six fingers. With six fingers. I don't know if it's that accurate. It does. It does. Has has it remember, got it, it. Yeah. She, she got into this thing where they were like limited editions. Royal Dalton, they were limited editions, but they were limited to, like, five million copies. You could just grab a teacup in your kitchen. There's less than five million being made of those. And I've, I've always said I've always said to her, and I still say to her this day, that uh, when she dies, I'm going to inherit the Anne Boleyn and execute it by knocking its head off with a golf club <laughs> in the garden. We're going to make it more realistic by taking its bloody head off.
0: <laughs> so we'd sit in your, uh, in your mum's, and uh, it was like a mock Tudor uh, uh, living room. And it to been fascinating.
1: <laughs> You're making my put my eyes sound very
0: weird now. <laughs>
1: mock it Tudor. It was. I like I could live in a theme park. <laughs> <laughs> what are you suggesting? Amberlin, an amberlyn, an accurate six-fingered amberlyn porcelain model and it had a t- mock Tudor. Like I'm living in a Henry VIII Eighth theme park. It wasn't like that at all. It's a suburban, normal house.
0: And uh, Sunday afternoon, we used to watch films occasionally. We got them from uh, Mr Patel's video hire shop. It was like a blockbuster, wasn't it? Um,
1: he had, he had a, a limited selection of films. Well, I Did did he have that one all the time? Did that just appear? And we got very excited about
0: it we because suddenly... It. The poster for this is very imposing. It's very impressive, mm. isn't it? Gandalf yeah. looks great on the poster. On, on the film, not so much as he? He's a bit. Like, yeah,
1: he's yeah, just like an old codger with a big beard. Yeah, he's got a beard and, and obviously the, the moustache with it, and it looks like the moustache is growing out of his nose. All the characters with beards in it, Boromir's got a beard and King Theoden's got a beard. It looks like the moustache is growing directly out of the nose. Very strange.
0: But it was all part of I, and I remember um, watching this with uh, with with Simon, because, of course, he was a big fan of uh, Rings, as we've mentioned before. He, he used to have, uh, I think, a... I have mentioned this before, that he had in his bedroom a glass panelled bookcase. And in that bookcase he used to have the rise of all of the Third Reich. Yes, of course. He used to have some miniature brandies from Yugoslavia. Yes. And he had his collection of the rings. And part of that collection was the BBC adaptation on cassette. Mm,
1: yeah, like the kind of Radio 4 dramatized version of it,
0: yeah. And I remember a lot of coverage of this uh, film prior to it being released, but it was some years later when I actually saw it. And I didn't actually see it at the cinema. And I know that a lot of people hold this film in a lot of affection. So we should apologize, Nigel.
1: <laughs> I, I hold it in a degree of affection. I think it's it's one of those, and I've only watched it twice. Because it was on video, you know, you, that wasn't it. You, you hired it, you watched it, and that was that, you know. So I've only watched it once in my mum's mock Tudor theme park living room, and now I, I don't remember laughing at it. I remember, I remember just being slightly disappointed in places. It seemed a bit half cocked because it's got this kind of weird live, a, live action animation in places. Some of the characters are just not how you imagine them, and and. The, you know, without the risk of spoilers. It just ends quite abruptly, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, I do think um there's a problem with it in that some of the voice acting isn't quite up to scratch. I think some of the characters throughout this in the voice acting sound rather angry. Everyone yeah. very angry all the time, don't they? <laughs> Except <Same laughs> the press angry that they're in it. <laughs> For example, um John hurt's um Strider it It's not a great performance, is it? Although, I remember when we watched it in your mum's uh, mock Tudor uh, theme park, that (laughs) I had a great deal of affection for Strider. Yeah. Mm. He was not how I imagined him in the books. Um, He was a much more um, assertive character in the films than he appears in the books. In the books, he seems very aloof and
1: yeah, he's really? slightly yeah, slightly aloof and 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 in the sort of in not in the background, but yeah, a little bit reticent about, about things. He's a bit more street, isn't he? This film. <laughs> it looks like Meek McManus. Yeah,
0: seventy. And he's, mm-hmm. wearing,
1: he's wearing strange costume as well. He's wearing
0: like a little little. Like a little black dress, isn't it, with a big belt round it?
1: It's a strange thing
0: that... Once, well, his first, first appearance is like a lingering tracking shot up his thigh, isn't it?
1: But No, I know, I know what you mean. And some of the animation as well is a little odd in that they, they're speaking, the dialogue's carrying on, and people are fun, pulling like funny faces and reacting in, in ways that are not quite consistent with the dialogue. And again, I, I suppose that comes back to the sense that it's all a bit half cocked, in that it all it's almost like they've they've done the animation and then done the dialogue and it doesn't quite gel together
0: in places. One of the things that we haven't mentioned before, but um back in the day, alongside parallel to us playing role playing games, we used to be in a amateur dramatic um pantomime group. Yes. I can see a lot of the same direction, that that feeling that everybody's in a semicircle, waiting for yeah. their turn to speak, and when it's not their turn <laughs> to speak, they're like twitching.
1: Yeah, they have, they, have, they have the urge to react in somewhere rather than stand still. You know, it's it's, it's okay to stand still. Yeah, that's what that's exactly what it's like. People yeah. pulling the, the hobbits, pulling the faces, and you think they're pulling the faces, for? yeah, you know. What are they doing that for?
0: No, no reason at all. The Hobbits are guilty of inconsistent nodding throughout this mm. film, even at the most dramatic times.
1: Yes, yes, yeah. That's, that's, and that, that is it. But you, first, you can't quite put your finger on what, what it is that's going on, but you're right, that, that's exactly what it is. There's reactions going on that don't quite necessarily quite fit the action or the dialogue, which is, is odd.
0: And, and you may say that it's a bit unfair because obviously we're in a golden age of animation, yeah. aren't we? Yeah. you know. But you could say that this is something that was pushing at the boundaries of uh, animation, particularly with the rotoscoping, which was taking mm. live action and imposing animation on top of it. Yeah, I think the difficulty is is that there's a, a sense of inconsistency, and in yes. some of the scenes. There seems to be about four or five different aesthetic choices going on at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yes.
1: Yeah, some of the rotoscoping is, is quite good. I think, you know, we we both agreed that the, the ring wraiths um in the rotoscope form are quite scary, aren't they? Yes. They're yeah. quite scary. In animated form they look slightly well, the opposite, they look like old old fellas. One kick and they go over. But when they when they switch to rotoscope, they are scary. But That said, they do look like completely different characters, yes. don't they? You would actually get confused because I think you might think, who are these now? You know, when you see them on is it on Weather Top, Winter Top, called? Yeah. And they 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 appear on that, don't they, in the rotoscope form? So it's like live actors with that kind of strange overlay over the top of them. Um, but that and they're very, but they're very different from the ringwraiths that you see in Brie. So if you didn't, if you didn't know that they were the same character, you, you might be forgiven for getting confused because they look complete, almost completely different, don't
0: they? Yeah, in some respects.
2: Well, if you think
0: um, at some points where it's most jarring is at the point where some of the backdrops are very detailed, aren't they? So mm. they are. Um, Eastern European singing ringing tree uh, <laughs> not to that singing ringing tree yeah. um, backdrops with a very flat perspective um, mm-hmm. drawings and paintings, <laughs> very impressive in places. then imposed on that you suddenly get the rotoscoping, which is, um, disarming because of the way that it looks and people move in particular ways and the close yeah. things. And then they have still images, which again is like almost Japanese, uh, no theatre, yeah. isn't it? Uh, very dramatic. And then you get Legolas, who looks like he's an extra from Sleeping Beauty.
1: <laughs> he's just walked out, frozen or something. <laughs> he, does. <laughs> he does, yeah. Yeah, I think I think there's a scene in one of the battles, isn't there? Where um, is it the Helms Deep battle? Which does does it does look quite good with all the rotoscope stuff? It looks it looks all right, it has a kind of um, strangeness to it that works. And then then Legolas just appears, like you say, like, you say, like he's, he's literally walked out, stumbled out of a Disney film into the wrong film. Yes. Yeah, it does. He right, he appears firing his arrow, and you think, well, where, where did he come from? oh it's that like, oh it's Legolas isn't it yeah. but he just look, he does he looks like he's from a completely different
0: film it's high but this is a very <laughs> impressive art film when it's yeah. just, it's low it's like a TV movie you know
1: well yeah I think well I would I would go further my, my wife Mrs Blythe, watched it with me and she said why are you watching Scooby-Doo <laughs> at, at one point I think they were in I think they were in it's the bit where they're in the Mind of Memorial, you know and she said, um, what are you watching Scooby-Doo for? <laughs> I thought I well, ain't got a point there, haven't you? Soreman's <laughs> a janitor. And she said, that, like Scooby-Doo, is that there's a bit where, that you know where the, the tentacle thing, the, the creature yeah. comes out of the lake?
0: Yeah, stick it, oh. stick a off in it. Stick. A yeah, it on.
1: looks like a thula. If you watch closely, it shuts the doors of Minds of Moria for them.
0: Soreman's um, an interesting character because he doesn't make an impact, does he? No, um, as, a, as a character. He's just like a sideline thing. Hmm. They do refer to him. It, it, the, the inflection of uh, Gandalf's pronunciation is more inconsistent than my pronunciation's in games. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that Gimli and Gandalf at some point refer to him as Harryman. man <laughs> <laughs> did, did, it, did I... Am oh I Yeah,
1: I, you're right. Yeah, it is, it is inconsistent, yeah. Yeah, and that's what I mean, it's kind of hodgepodge, isn't it? Of, you know, yeah. I mean, Gimli, Gimli, he's, Gimli's not a dwarf. I don't think Gimli's, a, I mean, given that he's an animated character and you could adjust his height accordingly, Gimli doesn't look like a dwarf. He just looks like a shortish bloke, Yeah, doesn't he? He doesn't even look like a dwarf.
0: I'd like to uh, look at a couple of scenes in a bit more depth. Let's start with the scene that I remember the most from that time, in your mum's thing, <laughs> the prancing pony, yeah. And when we played the prancing pony, when we played uh Merp, this is the prancing pony that I remembered in my imagination, yeah. So I think yeah. the depiction of it is quite distinct, isn't it? Mm. And the Merp supplement had that image on the front of it from the film, yeah, you? yeah. And this is the first point, I think, in the film where rotoscoping is introduced and they have very characterful faces that are animated. Yeah. That look very weird against the flat, disney uh,
1: Yeah, actors. that's right. Up, up to that point, it's been straight animation. So it's the first point where you see it, the rotoscope, and it, it does jar you because up until that point, it's it's been apart from the the opening titles are kind of odd. They, they are like some Czechoslovakian art film, aren't they? Yeah. With the uh, figures behind a like a doily or mesh or something, aren't they? But, but putting that aside, when the film starts proper, it is tis it like a cartoon, it's like an animated film. And you think, All right, I settled into this, it's an animated version of Lord of the Rings. But when they get to the Prancing Pony, you do get the rotoscope and you think, Oh, what's this? And I think I remember that when we watched it. One yes. first time I watched it, it just jar you, suddenly think, "Oh they like they're like real people, aren't they?" How, how strange.
0: And I think what is good about it is that it conveys that sense that the hobbits have come from a, a normalized existence, and mm. they were quite excited about their adventure, and then they're faced with ugly.
1: Yes, humans. these leering humans who seem a bit sort of threatening. They're a bit odd and threatening, aren't they? Yeah. A bit scary in a, way, in a weird way, aren't they? Yeah. yeah.
0: And mm. then you get the long, lingering shot of uh, Strider's thigh. <laughs> and he's introduced, and I remember this scene as well very, uh, very much, the ring rays, um destroying the beds.
1: Yes, yeah. yeah.
0: And that's the last time that you see the ringwraiths as animated figures. Yeah, after so that they become... Yeah. Kind of ethereal, uh, rotoscoped images, like mm. samurai, aren't they, with like, samurai helmets on? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they, they are fearsome, I think, at that point. When, when they're in their animated parts, um, not so much
1: because
0: mm. uh, he, he said that you know, kick him, kick that fellow he was looking for. Him.
1: Yeah, kick, kick him and they'd fall down. They don't, they do look frightening at all. As animated. They, they're animated. They're they look a bit well, weird and old, like. But yeah, when they they go to the rotoscope versions, they they are quite a bit, bit scary, aren't they? I mean, they're always. I always thought the ring rats are wasted a bit Lord of the ring. You know, they get swept away, don't they, in the river? But I always think mm, they're kind of wasted because they're the best monsters in it, the best baddies in it, really, aren't they?
0: Yes, I think you're right. I think that's right. I think um, it certainly in the novel, it loses its pace the moment that they mm. no longer seem a threat.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the idea film, that they're pursuing them is quite is quite powerful. I think.
0: Yeah, what this film does well, I think, is to uh, reflect that sense of imposing threat very yeah. early on, and um, they seem more scary in some ways than they do in the the books at this hmm. point the other the other scene uh, that i think is uh, interesting re- to reflect on is how incidental rivendell seems in, in the book it feels like uh, the, where the formation of the uh, fellowship it feels very significant whereas in this film it feels more like a reunite thing with um, yeah with Bilbo, that seems the most significant.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's just a means to an end to get everyone together. With with Elrond, he doesn't, doesn't look like an elf. He doesn't, does he? It looks like a, a relaxing tennis player or something, doesn't he? Why? <laughs> with his gold medal round. So he's like, I don't know, Ilya Nastassi or something.
0: Sure is that. Uh, Boromir, by law, has to be played by somebody from Sheffield.
1: Yes, well, of course, he's classic. his classic Tolkien, yeah. The working class, untrustworthy, easily, easily, uh, easily kind of tempted. There you go, Tolkien, isn't
0: it? It's more accentuated by uh, Jimmy Tarbuck, or should I say Sam Gamgee? <laughs>
1: There's some brilliant characterizations. Billboard looks like Jimmy uh, uh, thingy, Jimmy Cranky, <laughs> Jeanette, uh, Jeanette Cranky, I should say. Maybe yeah, and and yeah, Sam looks like Jimmy, a, a sort of. I don't know. Like a kind of, I, I said Jimmy Tarbuck. Like tw- it's a twisted version. Really annoyed me, Sammy there. Yes. He annoys me anyway. He annoys me anyway. Right. He annoys me anyway. But particularly in this film, because he is, he comes across, how can I put this politely, but he does come across as like a bit. He's slow on the uptake. So. That's what I mean. In I mean, in the Peter Jackson film and in, in the book, he's, he's not, he's not, I don't think he's stupid. He's just—he's just a kind. Of, he's like presenting more of a yorkle in like an innocent. Yeah. He's like a loyal innocent kind of character, isn't he? Who's got a bit more to him than perhaps may appear. But I think in this in the in this version, he's—I don't—he does come across as like a, a bit of a simpleton, which I just found a bit uncomfortable, painful to watch. And so, I know he's only a cartoon. It's only a, an animated character, but somehow it just was, was a slightly painful. I thought yeah. places.
0: I suppose we need to come on to the characterization of uh, Golem. That, that's an uncomfortable characterization of Golem, isn't it? Because yes. I, how can I put this? as a definite undertone of um, Jewish. Uh, uh, um, uh,
1: yeah, yeah. Okay. There is there is a hint of that to it, isn't there? Yeah, I mm-hmm. thought that. Which again is a s- oh, slightly uncomfortable. Yeah. We need to
0: talk about uh, Moria, don't we?
1: <laughs> and the, uh, should and the, should be good, but Scooby Doo, what is the Scooby Doo scene? Isn't it?
0: You know, famously in the books, the Balrog is not described.
1: I'm no. sure
0: J.R. Tolkien didn't have in mind a disco lion with the the wings.
1: the lion almost reminiscent of the lion from Banana Splits. Rory, it was Rory the lion, wasn't it? Which I, I just think is it's not what Tolkien had in mind. Is it? Yeah. I think it's fair to say. I wouldn't want to speak for Tolkien or his legion of fans, but I think it's fair to say he wasn't thinking of Rory
0: from the Banana Splits. Yeah. There was a callback as well to uh, Liz Danforth's flares because he had uh, quite big flares <laughs> on, didn't he? <laughs> yes, he was. <laughs> well, Galadriel, Galadriel's
1: a bit disco as well, isn't she?
0: Yes, yeah. A
1: Saturday Night Fever.
0: <laughs> like, you know, like
1: a disco princess, isn't she? You know, what was this? what's this? Sort of been cool. elf, but she's got like a headband on, got the BG staying alive is going to break out at any minute. But yeah, the Moria rotoscope stuff is a bit, uh, is a bit doff, isn't
0: it? <laughs> it doesn't
1: quite work.
0: Where I think the rotoscope works is, uh, during the Helm's Deep. Uh, hmm. I think while we were watching it, you said that the orcs steal the show.
1: They do, yeah. They, very, they, they remind me a little bit of the Sand People in uh, Star Wars, but a slightly more menacing version of that. But I think they do steal the show, don't they? they they're good. They're quite kind of scary and, well, orcish, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. With, with
0: their red eyes and distinctive mm. tusks. And yeah. They do look, uh, do and in think?
1: a way, the, 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 rot- the rotoscope stuff... I never thought I'd use the word rotoscope as much in my life. I, I'm talking about it now, but anyway. I, the rotoscope stuff looks good with the Orcs because they, they have more of a fluid, quicker movement, don't they? Because it's live action, under, underpinned by live action, isn't it? Uh, they move quicker and more fluidly than the animated characters, and it gives them a kind of scariness because they're quick. They're like quick and quite vigorous and energetic, aren't they, in the way they move, because they are real people dressed up as opposed to an animated figure. So that gives them a certain degree of threat, I think. I agree. And Gandalf only looks impressive when he appears in Rotoscope at the end. Well, that's odd as well, because there are bits where the animated lead characters do appear in Rotoscope briefly, don't they? So clearly, like an actor, only very briefly, but you do notice it when it happens. You know, we have
0: to we have to address uh, the end of it because I think you're right in saying that um, it does go at a thorough lick, doesn't it?
1: Well, I think, and it's it's worth noting. It's worth noting just for the record that there is no Tom Bombadil in this one either.
0: So two directors can't
1: be wrong. Notable, notable by his absence. Again,
0: I think back in the day, I did uh, take him at the word when he said. as their gallant tale ended, so did the first of the great tales of the Lord of the Rings. I assumed that there was another one, and I'm pretty sure that we went looking for it. Uh, uh, Mr. Patel's the uh, <laughs> we,
1: we sent him. We sent him on a <laughs> on a fruitless quest. Mr. Yeah. Patel's probably still looking. He is, he's still looking he is. for it. He's still looking for that that sequel that never was. Never was, and it is disappointing. Did did, did they plan to make a sequel?
0: I think so, yeah. uh,
1: yeah. It does does get get a feeling that it's it's asking for a sequel, isn't it? Well, of course it's asking for a sequel, because we know it's not finished, it's Lord of the Rings, it doesn't finish, but, you know, that side. It would take about
0: 20 years later, wouldn't it, for a a full Mm. Lord of the Rings trilogy to be produced in the form of uh, Peter Jackson's uh, Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And I seem to remember at the time you were far more enthusiastic about it than I was at that time. I, mean, would you I enjoyed think? it. I
1: mean, I enjoyed I think they are. I think Return of the King I have my reservations about. But, you know, the first two are great, really. They're great They. Fantastic achievements, really. I mean, as I say, I, I have my reservations about Tolkien, but you can't take. You, you've got to give it to Peter Jackson. They are, they are fantastic to, to actually do it like that on the film. You kind of never, you'd never have thought anyone could do it, but and they do look good. They kind of look, in some ways, and, and this is, I suppose, this is where the two films, the two films differ, the Peter Jackson films and the Ralph Bakshi film differ, is that. To my mind, when I watched The Fellowship of the Ring, Peter Jackson's Fellowship of the Ring, it it was kind he thought, he managed to get it how I would have imagined Lord of the Rings to be. It looked like what, not quite, but kind of things that were in my head when I read the books. Peter Jackson's version was similar, whereas the Ralph Batsby version was a bit
0: not, that wasn't quite how I imagined it. The difficulty I always have with the Peter Jackson films is that, to my mind, they're a bit too uh, fair and um, dare-glow in their depiction. And what I always rail against is the idea that these are the definitive visions of how we should be. Mm. They're not particularly how I imagined them. When I read uh, Lord of the Rings, and again, when I've read them uh, recently, it's far more... Um, it's got a bit of a, a darker edge um, than is depicted in the Peter Jackson films. I think um, maybe it's just me. I I always think that as well that it came from that period of time where CGI was a point where um, directors were of opinion where you know we can do this, so we should rather than you yeah know, holding back and um, thinking, you
1: know, let's use this sparing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know what you mean, and I think that's where Return of the King goes a little bit awry. I mean, Return of the King goes, it's, it's problematic because it, it does just repeat itself. So you get helms deep in the two towers, don't you? The big siege, yeah. the big face-off between the orcs and the Bides of Rohan and all that. And then you get Minas Terri, think, oh, it's the same thing, you just repeated, it, isn't it, again, yeah. really? Just sort of, but you're right. It's repeated at a slightly more spectacular level, but at a level which becomes ridiculous. The elephants. I know. I know these things are on the book, but the elephants, the way it's done, legless sliding down the trunk. All that's just all a bit much. So I, I agree with you there. I think Return of the King is where he, he just was a bit too far was Helm's Deep I think is is fantastic the
0: way that's done the tension it right. builds and everything perhaps
1: you're right perhaps
0: I I felt more fondly towards them and um, and I think on the whole that um, Peter Jackson busted his flush um, with the films that came afterwards you know he was mm. uh, in that in that franchise he became a person of diminishing returns you know yeah let, let us not talk of the Hobbit, for example.
1: Oh, they're terrible, aren't they? I don't like them at all. No. Yeah. yeah, that that's. But, but it, you're right in a way. That, that's the thing, isn't it, with the Hobbit? It, it's you managed how how you managed to take a relatively short book and make it into three long films. Yeah. You know why have you done that? And as you say, it's almost like there's an indulgence to it that I can do this, so I'm going to do it. You know. I'm going to drag it out for as long as possible. So, but I do think Lord Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings, for, for me, I can remember seeing, you know, Aragon and thinking, oh yeah, oh, that's Aragon, yeah. And Boromir, you know, Sean Bean is Boromir. I thought, oh yeah, oh, that's Boromir, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of, you know, how I imagine them, whereas in you know Boromir with his Viking helmet on in the Brow Factory film, I thought that's not Boromir, you know, that's, yeah. that's not really how I imagined him. But Sean being Boromir, I thought, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's it. And I, I, <laughs>
0: I suppose I was the same, I thought, and um, Ian Holmes and Bilbo Baggins, yeah, but Martin Freeman, ah, oh, no, 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 like no, you don't like him, do you? Not at all, no. No. no, he's, he's no. the only man in the world that he's employed to be permanently perplexed look perplexed for for a living yeah that's Mm -hmm. his
1: one his one uh, (laughs) (laughs) this is one thing is he one trick pony actor we need someone to look perplexed get mike freeman in we have to we have to be honest now don't we as well that we we nearly got thrown out of the cinema at the end of return of the king yes because we watched we watched those films three epic films right to the bitter end and in a sense, we ruined them. I probably ruined them for people in the cinema. Anyone who's in there, I apologise now. Because we got a fit of the giggles, didn't we, at the end? Yeah. With the hobbits jumping on the beds in the nightshirts, We got, we did, we just, just started laughing. I don't know why. I'm not going to go into why. I don't want to go into why. Okay. <laughs> and I suggest you don't. But <laughs> we couldn't stop. We just couldn't start laughing. We ended that and we probably ruined it. There's people. There were people scowling at us, weren't there? In the awesome. darkness, I noticed a few. It wasn't particularly full cinema, thankfully, but there were a few people yeah. turning and scowling as they were probably all dewy eyed because this epic series of films was coming to its conclusion. And that last, what, 10 minutes, we were just, I don't know, my ribs hurt laughing. I couldn't, just couldn't stop laughing. Once we started, I couldn't stop. Yeah. I don't know why, but it just seems such a... <laughs> it makes me laugh
0: I'm Stupid. <laughs> we usually sign off this uh, groggle box section by contemplating what can we take from this film that we were introducing to gaming? Um, it's
1: quite difficult, isn't it, I think? What would you, what, <laughs> what would you take from it?
0: I guess. Um, what can what can I take from it? There's nothing, is it? Let's end with those jumpers. <laughs>
1: nothing. There's nothing to take from it. But again, we we I think that back in the day we watched it. We we did like it, and we watched it. Probably with, a... I don't know, like it's a mixture of. of Excitement and disappointment at the same time. Yeah. Because it was a fantasy film that you know, they were few and far between, weren't they? Yes. So you lap them up trying to trying to learn something from it that you could incorporate into a game, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure there is anything much in it. No. Lord of the Rings, isn't it? You know.
0: I remember Simon being very disapproving on that. Yes. He,
1: didn't like it. he didn't like it at all, did it? No, I think it was. But then I, I can. I think at the time we thought his disapproval was funny. Um, but I can sort of sympathise a bit more with that disapproval now because I suppose if it's a book that you, it's like anything, isn't it? If it's, a, if it's a book that you love, to see it turned into a film that's a bit inconsistent, a bit of a mishmash, to see that must be slightly sort of it must be difficult if you if you we, we didn't have a particular as is well documented we don't have a particular fondness for Lord of the Rings do. It. But yeah. Simon put it on a pedestal, didn't it? You know, there there are things that it, it's like if, if someone made an Elric and Melnybow film and it was a bit like that, we would feel equally annoyed, wouldn't we? And dismissive of it. I suppose it's because he, he was bothered about it we, we were never that bothered about Lord of the Rings so
0: we weren't that upset if they said to us that they were going to do a Elric and Borne film and it was going to be part Czechoslovakian art film part <laughs> Rotoscope live action part <laughs> Walt, Walt Disney what was you
1: Walt of? Disney yeah I'd, I'd feel equally I'd feel upset <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Walt Disney. Like Moonglum. Moonglum would be like Walt Disney, wouldn't it? Moonglum and his cat would be the Walt Disney character. wouldn't it? Yes. You know. A voice by
0: Anthony Daniels like uh, Legolas in this. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, we're doomed. <laughs> if only.
1: Sadly, <laughs> you're not. Sadly, you're not, are you? are going to survive. Keep going, <laughs> stupid voice. <laughs> right, thanks a lot, Wyde. Till okay. next time. Goodbye.
0: Next. Thank you to Liz once again for giving her time for the interview and to Per for his hashtag Grogmurp First Last and Everything. It's virtual grog meet on the seventeenth and nineteenth of April. Go to the grognardfiles.com for details. It's bigger than ever. A hundred people have signed up for games over the weekend. It's really surprised me the level of enthusiasm for online remote play due to social isolation. I do hope that more and more people use the opportunity to play online It's transformed my life because play's the thing, and I've met so many great people and spent many many entertaining hours playing online. far more fun than binging on a box set. A new stretch goal has been added to the Patreon campaign which has unleashed a new monthly online one shot game for patrons. This will be GM'd alternately by me and Blythe and the programme will be published soon to commence in May. The Patreon campaign encourages us, covers the overheads such as hosting costs and they're due soon, allows us to do other supporting projects, thanks to all the patrons. We have some new ones who joined in February too. Sitting back at the comfy armchair level are Jason Coleman, Tristan Narborough, Bifford, Mike W, Stuart McQueen and DM Mike Stewart himself from Save for Half podcast. Thank you to you all. Adding a fancy poof to their armchair is E Andrews and long-time supporter Chris Miles. Thanks to you both. So far, so good level gets a virtual gif rolled from a table relevant to the episode. And this time, we're going to go open-ended critical on these new supporters. Right, I'm genuinely reading these as written from the Merp critical tables. Okay, I'm going to go for Potato Richardson with a novelty pen. Punch your wound table. 118. Strike through the kidneys. Plus nine hits, knocked down and dies after six rounds of very intense agony. Sad. I'm going to launch a fearsome daily dwarf at Gordon Cooper to tackle him down to the ground. 80. Both legs entangled, down and knocked out for plus nine hits. It's radio's John Hancock next, contributor to the Grogpod, And I'm going to go easy at him. I'll throw a miniature of a troll at him. Oh, I fumbled. Which means I roll and... While daydreaming, you put your hand in front of the miniature while firing. Lose a finger. Serves me right for picking me nose. Thank you. The Welsh wizard, Mike Hobbs, has recently revised his Apple podcast review to include some lovely messages of support for the GrubPod. Thanks, Mike. He's also got himself a high-backed chair. You know, one of those with wings at the back. Uh, Be careful with that moving manoeuvre. Be careful, Mike. 110. You fall. And the resulting concussion causes a year-long coma. A year-long coma? What are you supposed to do with a character while it's in a coma for a year? Thanks, Mike. Along with his high-back chair, Tim Searle has got himself a semicircle contour rug, which sets it off nicely. What's that wire? Ouch! I'll need to roll on the electricity critical table. Ouch! Head is no longer available for use. Smoke and ozone surround the lifeless body. Last, but no means least, is Ralph Ploughman. He's boosted his pledge, so he deserves a pat on the back. Oh no! Neck strike, crushes throat, cannot breathe and is stunned for 12 rounds. Poor fool, then expires. Thank you. At the end of 2019, I said I was going to have a post-apocalyptic theme to my gaming. I didn't count on the world joining in and turning it into some kind of larp. And despite the events that are currently disrupting our way of life, I still want to look back at how the anxieties in the 1980s manifested themselves in the games that we played. We'll begin next time with Gamma World. Until then, stay safe and look after yourselves. Adios, amigos.